Welcome to the Gain Momentum Podcast, focusing on timeless lessons from global industry leaders about how to grow and scale a business in hospitality, travel, food service, and technology. I am Jason Emanis, and I'm here with my co-host, Adam Mokolinski. Adam, how are you? Great to be here. And our guest today is Greg Beatty. Greg is a Gain Advisor, a recovering lawyer, it sounds like, um, COO, spent quite a few years in hospitality, servicing hotels, and coming to us from Thailand. How are you, Greg? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks, uh, Jason and Adam. Happy to be here. It's uh, Friday evening in Bangkok. I know it's uh, Friday morning for you guys, and I can tell you the future looks bright. It's good to hear. That's good. Adam, you want to take it away? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the way our format works here, Greg, is we have four questions that are focusing on timeless lessons, lessons that apply for anyone. Seasoned veterans, people who are interested to learn to become seasoned veterans, focusing on travel and technology, but also applicable to every single industry. So with that in mind, I'm going to take it away with the first question. And that is, when it comes to scaling a business, what is the single piece of advice you would give entrepreneurs from your perspective as a professional in the travel industry? Single piece of advice is actually pretty hard to narrow it down to one. I would actually have to jump it to three questions if I can do that. When I think of scale, I think of growth. So what's the additional resources that would be required to scale? Because presumably you're looking for economies of scale, but some additional resources may still be required, especially for distribution of additional products. Why do we want to scale? Of course, Every company wants to grow, so that's rather obvious. But why now? Why must we scale now? And how are we going to do it? Again, if you're looking for economies of scale, you want to do it with pretty much the same resources if possible. And I think the best example would be software, because if you create another license of software, it doesn't cost anything. But if you're not in the software business, that scaling, the more production is going to cost some money. So how are we going to do that? That would be my initial thought. When I think of scaling, I think of growth as well. How do companies grow? And the classic examples would be you grow organically or you, you grow through an acquisition, you buy another company, you grow additional revenue streams with more products. And also, I, I think some people think that that scaling is also going into additional countries. When I was working with a Japanese company called Docomo, Intertouch, we serviced the Hyatts, the Hiltons, the Marriotts around the world outside of North America. And I always fantasized because I was at one time I was the COO and I always wanted to go to additional countries. So I was excited to go to new countries. But I can tell you that our CEO was not always excited to go to new countries. And I'll give you one example. Marriott, they wanted us to go into Libya because they were building a new hotel in Libya. So they were opening that country for themselves and they wanted us to, to be their technology partner, put, put in the Wi-Fi system in their new hotel in Libya. And of course, I was excited to, to be able to travel there, but it never happened because the CEO didn't agree to it because he didn't think we could get scale in that country, number one, because one hotel, yes, you get the anchor customer, the anchor client. That's not good enough to scale the business in that country. And the money that we would have made from one hotel, the revenue, would not have covered the cost because we would have had to 
hire at least one person in that country. We would have had to set up a, a physical presence. We would have to pay for the setup fees of the company and the annual accounting fees and everything. So generally, the cost of going to one of those countries is fifteen to 20000 per year, just the annual cost of legal and accounting costs. And we would not have recouped that from that one hotel because it was a rather small hotel. So then it becomes incumbent on us to actually scale in that country, of which we knew nothing about. So we didn't do it. And one of our competitors did get the deal and actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise because three months after that hotel went live, it was taken over by Gaddafi's counterparty. It became a hangout for the, um, for the rebel government. So that, that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. So going back to your question, when I think of scaling, I don't think it's the same as going into new countries and geographic coverage because coverage is not the same as scale. Yeah, I, I've been through an international expansion in a small company. <laughs> it was hard, man. It was a big adjustment. And I feel like a lot of executives aren't equipped for the decision analysis to make those jumps. I don't know where they go to equip themselves, so to speak. We couldn't do it remotely either, because once we install a system into a hotel, you have to have somebody to service it because we have to meet service levels. And the only way we can meet service levels is by having someone in country, right? So then it becomes an extra cost. And they do expect us to meet those service levels, and you can't do that remotely. So at least the service levels we had. I wanted to bring in uh, another thread here is that you are a trained lawyer as well. And I think that's pretty interesting, merging the legal and the technology. And I'm wondering, how have you brought both of those skill sets together to help companies decide on answering why scale now? Okay, so from a legal perspective, I'm not litigation, I'm transactional. So I I would write contracts. Scaling, okay, so from a contract perspective, one of the things I would do is when we need partners in a certain country... We have to do the due diligence on those partners. And I always think that you can have a good contract, but it's more important to have a good partner. Because if you don't have a good partner, but you have a great contract, it won't necessarily be enforceable in a practical sense. You might have the right to make a claim, but you're really going to go to court or you're really going to go to arbitration. Sometimes the business case for that, it can be more expensive to get that resolution than the original money that is due to you. So the due diligence becomes much more critical than a great contract. And speaking of contracts, the one one question I always get is, well, how can you do, how can you write a contract for such and such a country when I worked in many countries? And you know what? Most times, even different legal systems like the civil law and the common law systems, if the contract's generally going to be a freedom of contract. So whatever the parties agreed to, unless it's against, uh, you know, the morals of that country or something, but that's a very rare exception. Generally speaking, all countries allow the freedom of contract. So I was able to draft contracts across many countries. And if I felt I needed to get something um, approved or, or a certain clause looked at by a local legal counsel, I would certainly do that. But it was on a clause by clause basis as opposed to outsourcing the whole contract to a local lawyer. Very interesting. I'm going to move on to the second question here. So Greg, talked a little bit about this edging into it, but what are the common pitfalls or failures you have witnessed that business owners should look to avoid when scaling their business? 
One way to scale the business is by producing additional products for your existing customer base. One problem I saw that we actually had was we had several products and several features on those products. And it became not only confusing for our sales team, but also to the customer. So how you present those products or those features or how you frame them became very important because you had to take the complexity out of it and make it simple. How did we make it simple? We usually had to pare things down to gold, silver, and bronze or premier package, uh, you know, secondary package. But how you frame all those products and um, features is very important. And and we learned the hard way because we confused customers uh, many times. And the sales team got got angry because they couldn't sell as quickly. They thought they could sell more products and get more sales commissions on each deal. But it turned out to be counterproductive sometimes by having too many options. So you limit the options, simplify the options. That would be number one. And if I can dovetail into one other case where we were primarily, we sold Wi-Fi. We put in, we we designed Wi-Fi systems and sold the Wi-Fi hardware and software for the authentication and the Wi-Fi systems, you know, one access point in every room and and so on. And we were good at it. But then we decided that we were going to try to get into the CCTV cameras because every hotel also needs those, right? And if we're knocking on the door at one hotel to sell them Wi-Fi, well, why don't we sell them CCTV cameras, right? Well, I went to a couple of uh, conferences on that industry, CCTV cameras, security and learned that it's a whole new industry. I learned how complicated it was. First of all, when I went to that uh, conference, there were at least 100 hardware vendors and probably 50 software vendors. So even choosing, like, what's the right hardware solution? What camera should we use? And then it would be like, well, do you want the film in black and white or do you want it in color? How many megapixels do you want? And then you have to design the network to put in, where do you put in the IC, uh, those CCTV cameras? Do you want back of head? Do you want front of head? And, and is, it could be a, an invasion of privacy for some people. So, how, so where you position those cameras was very critical. Make a long story short, we didn't sell one. And another reason we didn't sell one was because not only did we, we couldn't master what the product was very quickly, the sales pitch went to was directed to a different team. The, the Wi-Fi was directed to the IT people at the hotel, but the CCTV cameras were pitched to the engineering department. And we didn't know that until after we invested a lot of money to learning the CCTV cameras in that industry. The quick lesson that we learned was, if you're going to fail, fail fast. And we did. So we didn't lose a whole lot of money. We didn't lose a whole lot of time. I'd say six months. We did hire a couple of people, so we had to let them go. But it wasn't a a huge disaster because we realized that, hey, we failed. Fail fast. And that's okay. If you fail, fail fast and learn from it. I think it's common to underestimate. Even going back to expansion, it just seems common to underestimate these investments, whether it's expanding or adding products, I've been I've seen that as well. It's like a new product into a hotel, great. Come find out, very complex sell, total different audience. Underestimated the product management side on our end, the training of the sales team, looping in marketing and getting them trained up right, and it's it was just, ooh, it was rough. 
Yeah, and 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 uh, so we did train one guy. We hired one guy to to um, pitch to the hotels. But because we're in many countries, our headquarters was in Singapore, but our hotels were all over Asia and the Middle East and Africa. So we had to send that one guy out to do site surveys just to get the information to do a proposal. We wouldn't even necessarily get the deal. So it was very costly to do the proposals. So anyway, we failed fast. If I could just say one one other interesting example was, again, we were the Wi-Fi guys. The hotels wanted to get into, all, all the brands wanted to test the mobile key where your phone was the key to your door. So, so you would get your, you know, room 502 would get downloaded into your phone sometime as you entered the hotel or before you entered the hotel. So you could bypass the front desk, you know, and, and we've all suffered through those long queues at the front desk, right? So it sounded like a great idea. And some hotels are still doing it, but been talking about it for 10 years and not many hotels have implemented it. And here's why. The finance people didn't like the ROI because they were already using the key card. So there's one ROI. They've already invested in the traditional key card system. So the finance people were like, why should we buy a secondary system? Because the mobile phone is not meant to replace the key cards. It's supplementary too, right? So the CFOs at the hotels would say, why should I pay for two ways of getting into the, into the room? So that was a really hard sale. And then technically, even when some hotels just wanted to trial it, they really couldn't bypass the front desk because in many countries around the world, and I don't know what it's like in the U.S. or Canada, but the guest, when they come into the hotel, they must log their passport at the front desk. And that's a police requirement not a hotel requirement. So the hotels must follow that rule, right? So they didn't save any time after all. And then if it works for the door to get into the elevator, sometimes you need the key card to to go up to your room, right? To go up to your floor. And then you get like eight people in the elevator at the same time and they've all got their phones out trying to, you know, get get their floor destination. It was a nightmare. So that's one of the reasons why this hasn't really been taken off except for maybe small, some small hotels. And then, of course, the four-star, five-star hotel. They want that human touch, right? They want to interact with the guests. That's where they get their value and their high rates because they, oh, they know the customer's name. Oh, Mr. Jones, welcome back. So, yeah. It was really interesting to go through that, that pain. Yeah, the whole idea of fail fast really resonates with me. I guess just really quick follow-up is on that example about the pivoting or expanding to CCTVs is a lot of those obstacles, why weren't they identified before you went through the whole process of developing a sales team and sales apparatus around trying to sell into that vertical? That's a good question because we did not do a business case for that. And usually you think you should. It was more of an, (laughs) it was more of a, an emotional touch point for one of the leaders in our, in our company who just wanted to Wanted to do it. And actually, you know, it sounds like it sounded like a good idea, right? You're at the hotel already, sell them another product. They definitely need CCTV cameras. We can get more revenue. We can grow that way. But we didn't, we didn't do our research. We tried to get to first base before we, you know, knew the team we were playing and uh, we failed. We didn't sell one, not one. 
Oh, actually, you know what we did? We did one because they got it for free because we needed a reference site, which is another thing that's always bad. Again, when we go into new countries, it's not about new products, but the sales team, oh, that we got to get that. We got to get a big brand name. We got to get the Oriental. We got to get a Shangri-La. We got to get this uh, JW Marriott. We got to get this Four Seasons. So they want this nice reference site that the sales team really cares about. I never saw it resonate with any customer. No customer ever said to us, like no Hilton ever said, oh, let's do business with these guys because they got that Shangri-La or they got that flagship hotel. No, it's a good story to spin, but it doesn't spin any revenue at all. Wow, that's uh, that's almost counterintuitive to how a lot of technology companies uh, operate these days. Well, okay, so that that was our experience. Of course, yes, I know when somebody when you especially if you're a startup company, you need to have some reference sites, right? And when we pitched hotels in countries around the world, they would always say, "Well, do you have a reference site in our country?" I'll just use Marriott as as an example. It's not a real example. I'm just using the name. If we had a Marriott hotel in one country and then in the adjacent country, we didn't have any hotels, we were trying to get a Marriott in that new country we would say, well, we've got three Marriott's in the, in the country next door. They didn't care. It had to be in their country. <laughs> but then, if you're going to do that, then you have to think of a plan where how are you going to grow that country with a cluster of hotels? Because we had certain KPIs and certain, you know, what number of employees versus the number of hotels would be one typical one. So we had to make sure that if we were going to get one hotel in a country and open up that country, that we had to have a a cluster of hotels that we would expect to get within, you know, one or two years. Really got to pick your battles. All right, we're going to move on to the third question. What do you see as the key opportunities and challenges for companies in 2023 and beyond? So I, I see in Asia, at least, the um, the occupancy rates are definitely going up big time. And not at discounted prices, which, of course, they were during the COVID. So the hotels, the travel's picking up. All the planes that I've flown around the region have been at least 90% full. Okay, there's less planes in the air, but the planes that are flying are at least 90% full. The occupancy rate, if, uh, I'll take a guess, is um, 70%. It's not 100% like it used to be or close to 170, but it's not 30 like it was during COVID. So the, the definitely the travel tourism, hotel business is picking up. But opportunities. So COVID, I think, you know, the one word I heard is, is, is touchless. You know, the, the, you know, any technology that is touchless so that the hotel guest isn't touching stuff, you know, where they can, you know, pick up germs or whatever, right? So anything touchless was, was quite, is quite attractive to hotels. But the, the question I think has to be asked is, for any business, what problem are we solving? So if we have a new product or we have new technology, new way of doing things, what problem is it solving? And it's got to be a valuable problem that you're solving. I've looked at a lot of business cases and written a lot of business plans. When you have a business plan, it it all comes down to this, which is how is my new business going to help people? And if you can answer that basic question and have a good answer for it, it's probably a good business plan. Right. So the opportunity is a product or a solution or a technology that helps people. Given one example, in the hoteliers that I'm talking to out here, people that own hotels, one of the things that they want to do 
is reduce staff by 50% in the next three to five years. So how do you do that? Through automation, through technology. So if you have a product that can help solve that problem, because they want to reduce labor, they have to reduce costs because in my hotels, the owners of hotels, it's so competitive, right? And and they're... um, their profits are, you know, razor thin. So they're looking to save money. The biggest cost is usually labor, right? So if they can, if they can save on labor, and usually that's going to be through automation, if you have a product that helps them do that, you solve a valuable problem for them, right? So there's the opportunity. One company, that a startup company that I'm helping is they do recyclable mattresses. This is a new business. I've never heard of this business before, but hotels, obviously they need to buy mattresses, but it's usually a CapEx cost for them. This company, it's based in Thailand. It's basically a, a, a leasing program for the mattresses. So the hotel doesn't have that CapEx up front. They can lease it. And, and, and to my surprise, I thought there would be some like 10%, 20% premium on the overall cost of the duration of a mattress. And I think their maximum rental period is eight years. But what they'll do at the end of eight years, or the, you know, and the hotels can actually commit to a, a lesser time. That could be two years, three years, four years, five. But the maximum is eight years. Whatever they choose, let's say they choose four years. At the end of that four years, the company who's leasing the mattress takes it back and recycles it. It's you know that it's a circular economy, the the the, mm-hmm. the bio circular green economy (BSG). It fits that model. Having said that, it's doing a great thing for the for the environment, recycling these mattresses in a very good way, they're having a hard time getting financing, even though it's a great story. And they have very good business fundamentals. The guy that's leading the company went to Cambridge University in the UK, so he's got all the right credentials, but it's still a hard time. And I'd work with some other startup companies that are in the ESG and biocircular green economy, and they're having a hard time. So I'm just shocked at how how hard it is even for these green companies to get financing, to get off the ground. Even though that, you know, those companies make big headlines every day, the practicality of it is how do you get financing? And it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I just want to, I wonder if it's like a, just a priority in the investors. They just don't have that priority because it's also urgency. Are you solving a problem? Then how urgent is it? Like the labor thing is interesting. We all know that's a problem, and most of us know it's not going away. So it's pretty urgent that we find some solutions. Maybe in the investors' minds, they're like, mattress, I want to think that the reason why they haven't sold investors is just timing. They're just a little bit ahead of the curve. But again, I don't know. It sounds like a great idea. I love that phrase, ahead of the curve. My favorite phrase along the same lines is, um, you don't want to be so far in front of the parade that people don't know you're in it. Right. So, ah. so you don't want to be way out there and super advanced. You want to be just, just, just ahead of the curve. Greg, we're going to move on to the last question. And you've answered a lot of this already, but maybe there's a few other points that you have. So that fourth question is, what are the key things innovative leaders and entrepreneurs should prioritize and focus on to gain traction for their business? Okay. So conceptually, I'll just say... Uh, look for quick wins. So when you talk about the word traction, that, you know, build momentum, right? So look for some quick, easy wins rather than one big, large new product that, you know, has to be validated and market tested. Just come up with something small. There's nothing wrong with small, right? 
So I'd say look for, look for quick wins. I had a conversation with someone we were talking about, I'll call it the triad of what's more important for leaders of a company. Is it employees? Is it profit? Or is it customers? And this conversation transpired because the CEO of one company was saying, well, we got to treat our, we got to treat our employees right. The conversation revolved around some severance pay and some holiday, holiday turnover, because some, some people were collecting like 60 days of accumulated holiday time. And I said, well, most countries, most companies should make the employees use up that holiday time within the first three months of the following year, maybe six months, right? But you don't, you don't let them bank up like 60 days, right? That's actually poor management. And the CEO is, oh, no, no, we've got to treat our employees. We got, you know, the right way. And we, we, if they don't want to take the holiday, we'll just keep it in. Well, that it creates a, a liability for the company, accounting liability, right? So one guy was going to buy into the company, but he didn't want to buy into the company, invest in the company because of all this liability, which was not counted in what the guy was asking for, for, for the investment portion. So that got into conversation of what's more important, the revenue, the employee, or the customer? And I think there's no one right answer to that because it really is a blend of the three, but it should be a blend, not just one, right? Because, you know, you say, oh, happy employee makes the customers happy because you want the, you know, the smiley face of the sales team to go out and approach the customer, right? Yeah, you want to have happy employees, but you also want to have customers, right? So it's a blend of all three, I think, not just one weighs more than the other. So I, I, I would look for getting traction by continuing to examine that triad. Interesting. Just one more thing. You got you to remain personable, to the customer, right? So again, we're going to go back to that triad, the customer, right? So one story. Last year, I met a guy from Australia who was up here in Bangkok. Very successful person, owns his company, and grew the company three times during COVID. And I said, well, how did you do that? And he goes, you know what? And I never, I never, uh, all my customers must pay 100% up front, right? I never finance anything. I don't do any any financing for it. I I never do anything on credit. They got to pay up front. So how do you do that? What are you, what are you selling? Are you selling something sexy that people need? And you know what? It was printing cartridges. The guy sells printing cartridges, right? Now, the guy is so successful that he's got like three luxury cars. I think one of them's a Lamborghini and one of them's a Rolls Royce and another one's a Mercedes. So he has three cars, three luxury cars, very successful. But he goes, you know what, Greg? I never once got a thank you note when I bought those cars. But every customer who buys a printing cartridge from me gets a personal thank you note. That, that was, a, I mean, I locked that one in the memory bank. That was a conversation I had last year, but it's so poignant, right? That's printing cartridge. Hey, it's a customer. Got to make the customer happy. Make them feel good. The other thing, dovetailing to that one is he said, customers want two things. They want a solution to their problem, which we talked about earlier. And they want to feel good. And he goes, the thank you note makes them feel good. Yeah, that's a good story. That's a good story. Customers like interacting with uh, senior leadership. That you know, some sale goes down and senior leadership reaches out with a thank you. It works real well. And he also, when the phone rings, he answers it. If he's there by the phone, he picks it up. Yeah, I'm the CEO of the company, a big company, but he's, he operates in three countries: New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. But he answers the phone. Not afraid to do that. Right? Yeah. Yes. Better man than me. You, you, you better text me before I answer the call. <laughs> yeah. Well, Greg, uh, truly fantastic answers. A ton to learn from. 
and maybe to listen to two or three times just to really grasp some of the concepts here. I can't thank you enough, Greg, for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. And, uh, and thanks for you know, engaging in the answers as well as asking the questions. So uh, thank you for that, uh, Jason and Adam. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Gain Momentum podcast. To stay up to date, make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Gain Advisors, head to gainadvisors.com.